here's how we can build a society that is free, flourishing, productive, humane, caring, compassionate without the state. This is how we get people to realize that liberty truly is the mother, not the daughter of order. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, as well as links to our YouTube, Stitcher, and SoundCloud accounts, visit our website at nonservium.medium. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. We appreciate all donations, big or small, and your support helps us keep this project going. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 19th episode of the show. This episode is dedicated to everyone smashing white supremacy and fighting for a world beyond cops, prisons, and the state. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was murdered by a cop in Minneapolis, Minnesota, during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes, while George Floyd was handcuffed and lying face down in the street, begging for his life, and repeatedly saying, I can't breathe. His tragic killing sparked protests and rebellions in the US and all around the world against police brutality, systemic and institutional racism, and lack of sufficient responses from politicians and other political rulers. In fear of continued riots, Minneapolis City Council decided to disband and defund the police, only to eventually find that the city charter prevented them from doing so. While police abolitionists keep their fingers crossed for an amendment to the charter, righteous anger continues to brew in the streets of Minnesota and throughout the world. We don't know where we're going, but if there's one thing we're certain of, we absolutely cannot stay here. What would a world beyond cops look like? What is a healthy way of organizing defense in any given society? And how might theory, or actually existing examples of communities without cops, inform our hopes of living in a world without coercive authority? My guest today has spent some time researching related topics, and may have something useful to add to this very sensitive and important conversation. Here's my interview with Nathan Goodman. Nathan Goodman is a PhD student in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the University of Utah. Nathan has worked as a research fellow for the Center for a Stateless Society, a program intern for the Law and Economic Center at George Mason University, and a summer fellow at the Fully Informed Jury Association. His research interests include defense and peace economics, Austrian economics, public choice economics, and self-governance. Nathan Goodman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
Of course. Thanks for joining me today, Nathan. How are you doing today? Doing quite well. How about you? Not bad. Uh, enjoying my day off and looking forward to diving into this conversation with you. If anyone's a fan of non-Servian media and the work that we do, you might recall an old video series we did called Anarchy in Oklahoma, where one of the videos we were lucky enough to sit down with Nathan Goodman and discuss prison abolition. It's definitely one of my favorite video interviews we've done, and uh, our conversation today is likely going to be thematically similar in a lot of ways. But Nathan, it's been it's been years since we uh, did that first interview with you. Uh, what have you been up to in the meantime? Yeah, so when we did that first interview, um, that was, I believe, before I started graduate studies in economics. So at the time, I was mainly involved in uh, doing work through the Center for a Stateless Society and putting out a lot of stuff on prison abolition. And now, and since then, I've been a graduate student at George Mason University. So basically, I think the fall after we recorded that interview, I started the PhD program at George Mason. So that meant taking a lot of coursework in economics and then starting to do my own research, both independently and with various co-authors and mentors at George Mason, such as Chris Coyne, Bobby Herzberg and others. And so what I've been working on for the most part is academic research that uses the tools of economics to understand how people craft rules and create sort of institutions of governance in a variety of contexts. Some of these are situations where it's the state doing that and where we're going to see certain types of perversities associated with state power. So I've been doing a fair amount of work on the national security state and on the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border. And some of what I study relates to how rules and order can be created from the bottom up in a variety of social contexts. All right. Well, that seems definitely related to uh, what we're going to be discussing today in a few important ways. Speaking of, why don't we go ahead and just dive right into this thing? Sounds good to me. So, Nathan, how closely have you been following the rebellions that have been taking place in the in the states and all around the world? And what's your what's your takeaway on the on George Floyd and the protests and everything that have been going on? So, I mean, I've been like I imagine most of your listeners seen a lot of videos on Twitter reading a lot of different media coverage of these uprisings. And what I've really been intrigued by and excited about is the way that it seems like all eyes are on the violence of the police. And the Overton window has shifted such that people are talking about better reforms than they've been talking about in a long time. So rather than just talking about, let's give police implicit bias training, which most of the evidence suggests doesn't work, they're talking about things like ending qualified immunity, which would mean that police officers could actually face civil lawsuits for violating people's rights, which would be a big shift in the type of accountability they could face. So they're talking about these types of reforms that could actually have real impacts on the incentives officers face. And the Overton window has even been pushed far enough that it's not just the same usual suspects on the radical left and among anarchists who are saying things like, let's seriously consider abolishing the police. So it's been very good to see defund the police become a serious point of conversation, to see people talking about ways we can reduce the role of policing in society, and to see how the proliferation of cameras has allowed people to really document the brutality and the violence of the police and to draw attention to it and to resist it. So I think right now is a very terrifying time insofar as 
a lot of people are being brutalized and some of the footage of uprisings and riots is being used by reactionary forces to try to push for the criminalization of activists and anarchists with things like the Trump administration declaring anti-fascist organizers to be a terrorist group. But there's also just so much hope and so much potential in the fact that people are both resisting police directly and thinking through and talking about various ways to change how we approach policing and how we approach state violence, ranging from reforms all the way to abolition. Right. And as I mentioned in the intro, apparently they aren't actually going to defund and dismantle the police as we previously thought they were. A lot of us were very disappointed about that. Do you have any thoughts on what happened there and what might happen in the near future with that? Yeah. So based on my most recent reading about this, which was an article from The Hill, it looks like the city council passed unanimously a resolution that creates sort of a process of research and community engagement to transform how they're approaching public safety. And so what that looks like is first creating a future of community safety working group, which is going to be staffed by various employees from city departments. And they're going to deliberate until July 24th, then present some preliminary suggestions for engaging with the community and experts to craft a new model of public safety. And they've stated a commitment to engage with various community members and center the voices of people of color, victims of harm and other stakeholders who are really adversely affected by the police as they currently exist. One thing that suggests that they're looking towards limiting the role of the police, but not a total dismantling, is one of the council members, Jeremy Schrader, or Schroeder, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce that, um, said, we will continue to need folks who can respond to extreme or violent situations, but it is my hope that we can reduce our reliance on armed officers who, while necessary in some cases, are not best suited to constructively respond to many calls, like mental health crises, reported low-level offenses, and other incidents. And so it looks like they're seriously considering scaling back where police are engaging with people, which could really scale back the scale and scope of the violence that's inflicted on people if they follow through with this, but they're not necessarily looking to totally abolish the police department. They're looking to transform and reform how it operates. But just because this isn't full abolition doesn't mean that there's not potential for progress here or that people shouldn't be active in trying to shape the direction that these changes go. And it also doesn't mean that we haven't already made important progress, right? Various organizations, various public bureaucracies, as well as some private sector organizations in Minneapolis have cut ties with the police department. So for example, the Minneapolis public schools left their contract with the police department. So they're not going to have police officers serving as so-called school resource officers. So that's a major blow to the school to prison pipeline. And the Minneapolis Parks and Recreation Board cut ties with the police department. So that means that they're not going to have the police come in to handle large events at the park, and they're not going to send their park police to provide support to the Minneapolis Police Department. And so this has the potential to reduce the amount that police interact with people as they use other government-provided services. And so that reduction in police interaction is a potential for a reduction in police harassment, police humiliation of people, police violence against people. So, And these are also changes that people can start demanding in their own community. So seeing that that's possible, seeing that, oh, I could contact my local school board and say, hey, do you have police officers serving as school resource officers? Could you stop? We're going to keep calling and demanding you stop. 
that's a possibility that I think a lot of people might not have been aware of as an option for reducing the role of police in our lives. And now they are. And it's been shown that it can happen. And it happened in Minneapolis. I think I saw a headline as I was prepping for this interview that it may have happened also in Denver. So it seems like there's a lot of potential there for scaling back the role of police in our lives. And that's very exciting. Yeah, it really is exciting. And um, we as anarchists have been, obviously, we've been talking about police abolition for a long time. Why do you personally feel that it's necessary to abolish the police? So the big thing to me is that the social role of a police officer is a position of privilege, power, and authority. So individuals granted this social position believe that by virtue of their position, they have the right to coerce other people. They believe that individuals have a duty to obey them. And so do lots of other people, right? So you'll see situations in which police shoot somebody and people will say, well, he was running away or he was resisting arrest. Now, if an ordinary person interacted in that scenario and when they killed another human being said, well, that person didn't do what I said, well, someone might reasonably ask, well, was what you said get off me or stop hitting me? Or was what you said some command to them that it's not clear they have a duty to engage in? And so as an anarchist, I reject the notion that some people have the right to coerce and others have the duty to obey because this violates some very basic egalitarian commitments. It violates what philosopher Roderick Long terms equality of authority. And for sort of detailed arguments for why state actors don't have this type of authority, I would recommend the first few chapters of Michael Humer's book, The Problem of Political Authority. So once one rejects state authority, then a great deal of what police do begins to look like exactly what we're told we need police to stop. And so not only was killing George Floyd an act of murder by police officers, but arresting someone for a victimless crime is an act of kidnapping. Civil asset forfeiture is theft. Fines and fees are theft. Strip searches are either sexual harassment or sexual assault. So rather than police being just agents who are enforcing the rules that we as a society have agreed to and who are protecting us from violations of our rights, they are people who are given special privileges that make them particularly likely to violate our rights and that in fact make violating our rights a key condition of the job because their role isn't just to stop violent situations, it's to enforce a litany of unjust laws that have no moral legitimacy. And so this creates a moral presumption in favor of abolishing the police, because it's a position of coercive authority that comes with the power to engage in activities that we would rightly recognize as harmful, unjust, and unlawful if any other person carried them out. Right. Completely agree. And well said, Nathan. Why does it seem that police brutality often takes on an anti-black racial bias? So there's a range of reasons for that. Part of it might relate to what is considered unlawful. So what are people, what are police officers empowered to go after? So if we're criminalizing a lot of things that are associated with poverty, and if people of color have been systematically deprived of wealth and trapped in poverty, if anti-blackness has a class character, then that's going to be one contributing factor. If laws have been passed in a way that has a racial bias, things like the crack cocaine versus powder cocaine disparity, 
that's going to impact police interactions. Another thing that's going to occur with this is that there are some laws that give police extraordinary discretionary power. So when police are doing traffic enforcement, they have a choice as to which cars they're going to pull over. And so that discretionary power means that any bias they have, they have a wide degree of latitude to act on. They can pull over somebody on the basis of their suspicion. And if their suspicion happens to have certain racial elements, then that's going to influence who they pull over. Same with laws prohibiting certain types of victimless crimes. So for a violent crime or a property crime, uh, you sort of have to go after whoever the suspect is that you're called on, or at least somebody who matches the description of that suspect. Now, even in those cases, there can be a racial bias problem because someone being black is more likely to be treated as a salient descriptor, perhaps, by somebody who's calling the police than it might be for a white assailant than their race might be. But in the case of victimless crimes, you have a wide degree of discretionary power because you get to choose where you're going to be carrying out these searches. You get to choose where you're going to go looking for people on the basis of drug charges or firearm charges or sex work charges. So one setting where we've seen a lot of profiling is that black trans women are often profiled as sex workers in major cities, for instance. So that discretionary power opens up a realm for bias. Now, one thing that's tricky with disentangling all of this is it's hard to tell how much of this violence is a result of just who the calls are made about and how much is a result of actual bias in the acts of policing. And there are a range of academic studies who do this. A lot of people who want to deny the role of racial bias will point to a study by Roland Fryer, which did find sort of racial bias in escalation of force, but not in final use of lethal force. But what an article in, I believe, the American Political Science Review pointed out is that if there are biases in terms of who police interact with in the first place, there will be systematic biases in most research designs towards underestimating the degree of racial bias. And that involves some technical issues that I don't necessarily feel like we should get into today, but measuring this is extraordinarily difficult, but it seems very clear from the experiences that Black Americans report having with police that they experience these hostile and abusive interactions and report experiencing these hostile and abusive interactions more often than white Americans report experiencing them. And even if people point to some academic studies that they say refute racial bias, those are usually only a few out of a range of lots of studies that tend to find racial bias. And those results may result from a sort of statistical bias that is endemic to police administrative data because they only have administrative data on those they're interacting with. So it's a tricky issue to disentangle empirically, but it seems pretty clear that there is a racial component. And that racial component relates to the fact that police have wide range of discretionary power and relates to sort of a history of laws being constructed often in directly racial ways. So crack powder disparity, the war on drugs being specifically developed with racist intent, at least historically, the existence of laws like the Black Codes in the post-Civil War South that were explicitly racist, explicitly built to criminalize certain activities on the part of Black Americans in order to limit their mobility, limit their ability to engage with society, push them into a position 
of subordination, as well as situations like police and the FBI directly conspiring to destroy the black liberation movement during the sort of civil rights era and the black power era, right? So things like the FBI sending a letter to Martin Luther King Jr., threatening him, blackmailing him, and urging him to commit suicide. Things like the FBI collaborating with the Chicago Police Department to shoot Fred Hampton in his bed. Right, So that long history of direct police terror against communities of color is another thing that provides sort of good reasons to be suspicious of the racial role that policing plays in our society. Right. Okay, so what does a world beyond cops look like then? It looks like a world of largely voluntary social cooperation, but not necessarily a world without rules, rather a world without rulers. So the goal should be a world where we govern ourselves and where whatever governance happens is us governing together rather than relying on a privileged caste like the police who have the power to violently govern over us. And so this can take a range of forms. It could take the form of bystander intervention in cases of sexual violence. It can take the form of people working deliberately to make sure they have ways to contact their social network when they're in dangerous situations and get direct support from people that they trust. It can look like organized self-defense. And we can talk more about some of the ways this works. But the core thing is that governance is going to emerge from the bottom up and be sensitive to the context-specific needs of people in very particular social contexts, rather than being a situation in which members of a government bureaucracy are seeking to entrench and sustain the power, privilege, stream of funding, and stream of revenue that they have. And so abolishing these positions of power and privilege gets rid of a source of predatory authoritarianism and allows us to discover new ways to govern ourselves. Yeah, yeah, okay. And um, another way of approaching this is obviously we don't necessarily need to have a replacement for evil institutions, but a common concern from your average centrist relates to safety, right? They might say it's necessary to have cops so we can have dedicated people to respond to situations of domestic abuse or situations that require conflict resolution in some way. How would you respond to that? I think it's a very important point. And it's important to recognize that while a great deal of policing is unjust, police are currently serving some important functions. So I think some of our fellow abolitionists go too far by claiming that there's no evidence or very little evidence that cops prevent crimes, at least the sorts of harmful crimes that are worth preventing. This may have been true in terms of the evidence we had around the turn of the 21st century, but Recent research in economics has, using causal inference strategies and statistical methods, typically found that having more police on the streets does deter crime, which makes sense if you have a higher probability of facing some form of coercive reprisal as a result of an action, then that might deter you from engaging in that action. But while it's true that police deter crime and that individuals are flawed and willing to act opportunistically and abusively towards other people, Creating a special class of enforcers called the police is not the only way to deter crime. So, for instance, organized self-defense can deter violence, but does not necessarily involve creating anyone with the social role of police officer and the special privileges that entails. So, for instance, during the civil rights movement, activists face violence from white supremacists and police officers alike. 
they could not rely on the police for protection in this context because police were often a direct threat to them. So they banded together and formed armed groups like the Deacons for Defense and Justice. Similarly, Martin Luther King Jr., despite his overall commitment to nonviolence, hired armed bodyguards and had his own firearms despite the police denying him a firearms permit. One fellow civil rights activist, after going to his home, said the place was an arsenal. Now, of course, violent defense is not the only way to deter crime or, more importantly, harmful actions. So Jane Jacobs, who has written a lot about the functions of sort of American cities and the social ecology of American cities, has written about the role that eyes on the street play in deterring crime. So a busy, bustling area where a lot of people are around, that's going to be an area where you're not necessarily going to attempt an abusive act. And so part of how we address issues of interpersonal violence comes down to what sorts of communities we live in and whether people are interacting in spaces where they feel like they can hide their actions from one another, especially their abusive actions, or not. Another way to reduce crime or harmful activity is to alter the opportunity cost for the perpetrator, the opportunity cost being the next best alternative that you're giving up by choosing a course of action. And so one way to do that, of course, is to deter them through threats of violence. But another way to do it is by increasing the benefits of them engaging in some alternative course of action. So people might be less likely to invest in becoming thieves if they have good job opportunities, lucrative job opportunities that they reasonably anticipate will reward them more than a life of engaging in theft will. For another example of a type of harm that we would want some response to, we can think about domestic abuse. Now, much of domestic abuse relates to being able to brutalize a trapped victim who lives under the almost constant watchful eye of their partner, right, of her husband, usually, and who cannot easily escape due to living in the same house and having social networks that are very closely tied in with her abuser. Now, creating exit options, such as domestic violence shelters, is crucial to addressing that situation just as much as acting to hold the abuser accountable is. So is creating a group of people who can respond to situations and help you exit situations as they become crises. So one app that exists and was developed relatively recently, I think not that recently because I think I mentioned it in my last interview with non-Serbian Media, if I remember correctly, is the Circle of Six app, where basically you assemble a list of six people that you can contact on this app that looks like a lifestyle app rather than a emergency or crisis app. So the person you're with doesn't necessarily know if they're not super aware of these forms of technology, doesn't necessarily know that you're reaching out to alert that you're in a crisis. And you can send out a text to these six people just at the push of a button that will do things like, I need an interruption, urging them to call you so that that provides a graceful exit from a situation that you think is becoming dangerous or abusive, or I need you to come pick me up and sends your GPS location, that sort of thing. A less sort of directly technologically coordinated way of facilitating a similar thing is the notion of pod mapping. So Mia Mingus, who's a prison abolitionist, has written about this notion of mapping your pod of social relationships of the people who you might call on if you were in a crisis situation. And in some cases, these aren't necessarily going to be the people who are closest to you in other intimate relationships, just because you might not want to put that type of strain on that relationship. Or it might be the case that people in those close relationships might be the ones who are at risk of perpetrating abuse against you. But having an awareness beforehand of, well, who would I call upon in this situation? What would my concrete asks of them be? Are there things that we can do beforehand to prepare with one another? That's a way of 
using the sort of social communities and networks that we have to build up responses to violence and abuse that don't rely on calling in a police force that is likely to introduce something like deadly force or searches for things that are unrelated to the initial crime into the situation. So those are just some of the ways that people are already working to address these forms of violence. And one way, one reason that they're already doing this is that police are less effective than people think. They do deter crime, but they also aren't a organization that a lot of people who are most vulnerable trust. And so because a lot of people have very good reasons to distrust the police or to not want to bring the police in, people are already thinking creatively about how can I build alternatives to the police that are likely to work better for suiting my needs. And so the failure of government in this case has created opportunities for social entrepreneurs, for social entrepreneurs to create different ways of using and leveraging our social relationships and the tools we have to address harm. And so we see alternatives to the police all around us precisely because policing is bad enough, or at least insufficient enough, that people are actively seeking and building alternatives. Right, right. And I hope to get into alternatives after this next question. People sometimes dismiss anarchism or the idea of police abolition as naive because they think our ideas depend on people becoming angels in order for a society to successfully function in that way. How do you respond to that argument? Yeah, so I think it's an important and interesting argument, but I think ultimately it's an argument that fails because just because a state's legal system is one way to set up incentives that can deter potentially opportunistic and self-interested people from acting in harmful ways doesn't mean that those are the only institutions that can do so. Moreover, state institutions can themselves become extremely dangerous precisely because people aren't angels. And so while there is that line from the Federalist Papers, the if men were angels, no government would be necessary, what follows it immediately after is if angels were to govern men, we wouldn't need sort of constitutions to constrain them. I'm not sure if I have the quote exactly right, but it's something along those lines. And the problem is that most constitutional arrangements that we develop to constrain states tend to break down tend to degrade because officials in positions of power are always looking for ways to expand their power. And typically people will let them, especially in times of crisis. And so various things that exist within the American constitutional system, for instance, to try to check power, things like a system of federalism or limits on presidential war powers that require consent of Congress, these have broken down. The president is acting with basically unilateral authority to wage war around the world. We've moved from a system that to some degree resembles competitive federalism, where you could vote with your feet by moving between different jurisdictions, and that would have a meaningful effect on the revenue gathered by local and state governments, which would be the main source of political power in your community, towards a world in which it's what economists call cartel federalism. And under cartel federalism, you see a system in which these various lower units of government get a range of subsidies from central authorities, things like direct transfers of military hardware 
from the Department of Defense, as well as direct funding from Congress. And that means that they no longer have to be in any way responsive to local constituents, and they can instead seek out these alternative revenue and resource sources from the central authority. And so the constitutional constraints that were supposed to be associated with a federalist system are no longer limiting the activities of police. And so the usual answer for how we create a limited government if men aren't angels is one that it turns out doesn't work all that well, or at least has a tendency to break down. And so it might be time to consider a alternative way to constrain the exercise of power. And that is radicalizing the constitutional commitment to dispersal of power to a much greater degree by taking a system of formalized federalism and turning it into a system where in order to exercise governance, you need to actually be a consensually formed association from the bottom up. If we do that, then the checks on power have much more teeth. And we actually can come close to aligning incentives in a way that creates real incentives for people to act in ways that are beneficial to people around them rather than predatory towards people around them. And so a move towards anarchism, in my view, is not something that requires a romantic view of humanity, but instead logically follows from the non-romanticized view of humanity that various constitutionalists and public choice theorists and economists hold. So anarchism becomes the ultimate way to check power and to address opportunistic activity by limiting the scale of the hierarchical power that people can rely on opportunistically to abuse and exploit other people. So going back to uh, examples of alternatives, someone hearing about police abolition might find the idea nice, but ultimately not that strong because they might think that there's no real examples of anyone living without cops. Is that true? It might depend on what you mean. If you say that all rules are cops, then yeah, that might be the case. But if we're willing to make a distinction between police and the existence of some set of social rules, then it becomes false. So policing as we know it is to a large extent a modern invention. So historically, we've had a range of social arrangements, a range of ways that people provide governance. There are people who live in societies or have lived in societies where there's formally a state, but they don't really interact with the state's justice system because the state's legal capacity, its capacity to send police to various places is limited. And so they rely on a wide range of governance institutions. And some of these institutions are better or worse than one another, but they're there, right? In some societies, we see systems of customary law, customary law being social arrangements that people make with one another, where the legal rules are a result of shared expectations that result from how people do things with one another. And this can often involve a system of restitution rather than a system of direct punishment. So a system in which people must act to repair the harm they have done to others. In some cases, we see the emergence of justice systems that are based around things that we might not think of as all that appealing, but that serve people's desire to provide law and order in the particular social context that they live within. So within rural Liberia, the state's capacity to provide law effectively in some of these rural areas is relatively limited. And so 
people within villages will have rules that say, okay, in order to decide whether you're guilty or innocent, you're going to ingest this plant called sassy wood, which will induce vomiting. That's not a system that I would propose emulating, but it's a system that aligns incentives in a particular way because people have superstitious beliefs about the stuff coming out of you if you're innocent and staying within you and killing you if you're guilty. And that means that the degree to which they'll resist that is going to be correlated with their private information about whether they engaged in the activity that those in their community consider to be an offense. Again, not saying that's some ideal police abolitionist or prison abolitionist solution, still punitive, still kind of brutal in some serious ways. But what it shows is that people are creative about ways to develop accountability mechanisms. Again, that's sort of punitive justice, so it's not an anarchist ideal. Other things that people develop are the way in which they govern market exchanges, which often rely more on reputation mechanisms than formal law. And so, for instance, Ross Albright, when he created the Silk Road, built into it a set of reputation mechanisms, an ability to rate sellers. And so that meant that there was a way to address fraud in illicit drug transactions that didn't involve a shootout anymore. And so the creation of the Silk Road made the narcotics trade for the time that the Silk Road was allowed to operate, it made the narcotics trade safer. And systems based on reputation and ostracism have been core to commercial law for a long time. So eBay, Amazon, and Yelp are noteworthy contemporary examples that use the internet to allow people to rate various sellers. But historical examples of governance that is not provided by the state and facilitates commercial exchange goes all the way back at least to medieval international trade, which was governed by something called the Lex Mercatoria, or the law merchant, because people would come together at these fairs where you had merchants from a wide range of countries. And so since they didn't want to all submit to the legal code of the country that they were in, because that would give an unfair advantage to merchants from that country, they instead developed their own international system of rules that was then enforced through adjudication mechanisms that they privately agreed to. And as we've already been discussing, people have done various things in our societies that have cops to build ways to address violence without the cops. So the Audre Lorde Project, which is an organization mainly serving queer and transgender people of color in New York City, has built up what's called the Safe Outside the System Collective, which works to address things like hate violence by getting local community spaces and businesses on board with de-escalating situations and with being spaces that are unfriendly to homophobia and transphobia and will work to get people who are trying to commit that kind of violence out of the space as it happens and will have committed to do so without calling the police. They've also developed resources for promoting spaces that deter various types of gender violence in party settings. Um, and so these sorts of toolkits are things that people are already developing because they recognize that police aren't necessarily the solution to their problems and that they need some alternatives to the police. And so we can even see examples of what police abolition might look like in the ways in which people are filling the gaps left by the state in a society that operates within the shadow of the state. You see things like that happen in indigenous communities. There's a few different examples. Some people point to Rojava as an example of a society that's abolished cops. Can you think of any actual other like actually existing communities that have replaced the cops with institutions that serve their local wants and needs better? Yeah, so this can take a range of forms. Some people might point to the uh, Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico. 
I haven't studied that case in extensive detail, but it seems like they've developed a range of alternatives to state-provided governance and state-provided policing. Some people might point to situations where violence has been endemic in a way that resulted in villagers creating extra-legal governance mechanisms and sort of groups of night watchers to patrol the community and protect them from violence. And so that's happened in various situations of conflict. So for instance, Eduardo Escalante has a paper in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization on how that type of organization was coordinated in Peruvian villages to fight off the Shining Path, which was a sort of Marxist insurgent group that was engaged in sort of a civil war in their country. And we see similar instances in African countries of people at the village level coordinating defense against uh, Boko Haram. And so there are all these settings in which people coordinate with their neighbors, with people they know, in order to provide defense, to provide security, to provide these types of security services. How can Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom and her work help us understand policing as an institution and possible alternatives to it? Yeah, absolutely. So Eleanor Ostrom was uh, the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics, and she was a political scientist for the most part by training, though she did her undergraduate work in economics and some economists served on her dissertation committee, and she worked closely with economists throughout her career as part of the Public Choice Society, for instance. And so her work deals with how communities provide governance from the bottom up, and it takes a variety of forms. What she's best known for is her work on the commons. So she has a book called Governing the Commons, which essentially dispels what had been, until her book came out, the conventional wisdom with regards to common pool resources. And the basic conventional wisdom on common pool resources was this, that when you have a resource that is held in common, a resource that taking some of it can deplete it, but that it's costly to exclude people from, that it's difficult to exclude people from. So we can think of grazing land that's held in common as an example, or we can think of a fishery or fish in the ocean as an example. Then it's likely to become depleted. And the conventional wisdom among economists and other social scientists for some time was that there are two basic ways to deal with this. One is privatize it. So establish private property rights in some way, and then whoever holds the private property rights has incentives to conserve it. The other way that people proposed was regulate it using the state. So have the state come in and say, all right, we are going to enforce these rules. If you don't follow these rules that we have set regarding overfishing or regarding what your quota for fish is or how big of boats you can use to fish, well, you will get a citation or you will get a fine or we will send police to arrest you and then take you to court and then send you to jail, right? So those are the two ways that people thought of as, well, these are the ways we do it. What they had neglected was the possibility that people within the communities could develop their own solutions, their own ways to govern common pool resources, right? And what Ostrom found, both through extensive fieldwork of her own and with her colleagues, and from reading lots of other empirical work that had been done by people across disparate fields, was that, oh, while it doesn't always work for the community to come together to craft rules to govern common pool resources, it works a lot of the time. And some of the common features that attempts to govern common pool resources that have been successful have follow these sort of eight basic design principles. And I'm not going to go through each of them today, but some that are salient include things like 
um, direct participation by all of the relevant stakeholders. So there's collective decision-making that people actually get to participate in so that their local knowledge is incorporated and they feel that the rules that have been set are legitimate. There's boundary rules on both what the resource that you're protecting is and who gets to access it and so and who's part of the community that governs it. So that's another sort of design principle that she found with regards to these. Another relevant design principle is graduated sanctions. So people are held accountable for their violations of rules for, say, taking more fish than the community recognizes as appropriate for them to take. But the key thing is that these sanctions are graduated. So they start small. They start by, you know, someone seeing that you're doing that and saying, hey, uh, that's a bit more than your share. Uh, maybe stop that. And then, you know, they escalate a little bit and maybe it escalates to the person raising their voice and saying, hey, stop that. We don't do that here. And then maybe after that, it escalates to something like threats or to something like gossiping about the person um, and telling other people that they're deviating from the prevailing rules about how we govern a common pool resource. And maybe after that, it gets to the point of threats or socially legitimized violence, right? But it doesn't start with socially legitimized violence. And so policing, as it tends to exist in our society, doesn't go through this process of graduated sanctions, right? One police call for a minor offense can lead to someone getting shot. That's not graduated sanctions. That's, all right, we're going to jump straight to murder, right? So one thing that we can see is that societies in various contexts successfully enforce broadly agreed upon rules without relying for the most part on a special cast of enforcers called the police. It's mostly community members helping govern each other and bringing sanctions towards one another, but starting small rather than jumping straight to violence. And so that tells us something about possible alternatives to the police that seem to function pretty well in a lot of contexts and potentially function a lot better. Another thing that she finds is really important is dispute resolution, right? So there are going to be conflicts. There are going to be disputes among people in any society. Do you have an arena in which you can get together to resolve your disputes? And, you know, that can take a variety of forms, right? In some societies, it's I demand trial by combat. But, you know, in a lot of societies, it's, hey, there's somebody we both respect. Let's talk through our disagreement with them and whatever they say, we'll go with, right? And so creating more options for dispute resolution and conflict resolution is something that might do more to alleviate conflicts before they come to blows, before they become the sort of thing that in our current society we would get police involved in. And it's going to be a less violent approach than policing. And the other thing to keep in mind is that in our conflicts with the police, there's not really usually any neutral arbiter for disputes, right? Our ability to use the civil court system in our disputes with police has been heavily limited by a doctrine called qualified immunity, which has abridged a law or altered a law that said that police can be held civilly liable for violating our rights and changed it to for violating clearly established rights, with clearly established now meaning under current legal precedents, something to the effect of in order for you to successfully sue a cop for violating your rights, there needs to be a case with nearly identical circumstances of a cop doing that thing and it having been rule of rights violation. And so there are cases where cops like stick their dogs on people and have them bite them and attack them. And that's not considered 
a violation of a clearly established right or grabbing a woman and slamming her to the ground who wasn't even suspected of a crime, but was instead somebody who they were going to check on whether she was a victim of an assault. And she walked away with them because she said she had to check on her kid. Well, there wasn't a previous case that ruled that taking a petite woman, lifting her up and slamming her to the ground and breaking her collarbone because she was walking away from you violated a right. And so since that case law didn't exist, saying that that was a clearly established right, a case couldn't go forward. So we don't have those sorts of conflict resolution mechanisms for our interactions with police. That's a little bit of how her work on the commons can apply. But she also has worked directly on policing. So before she did most of her work on common pool resources, she had done some work prior to it. She had done some work on water resources when she was in grad school. But early in her career at Indiana University, Eleanor Ostrom, along with her colleagues and students, engaged in a detailed study of police departments in metropolitan areas. And what they were largely studying was how the scale of jurisdictions and police departments affected their performance from the perspective of the citizens who were being governed by the police. And so what she basically found was that in cities that had consolidated their police departments, taken various different like neighborhood jurisdictions and put them all under one unified metropolitan police department for the metropolitan area, police performance was pretty much uniformly worse in these larger, more consolidated departments. And there are a range of reasons for this. Some of it is that at the local level, when you have these smaller police departments, citizens have more of an ability to sort into jurisdictions that are providing policing that's more to their liking. They have the opportunity to do what economists call voting with their feet. And this can directly affect the police in the sense that it alters the sort of local tax revenue that's providing the basis for their funding. So they have some incentive to provide policing that serves people's desires for what policing looks like. Another thing is that citizen voice matters more when the police are in these smaller local communities because there's sort of fewer total citizens who are being governed by the police. They can more directly stand out from the crowd and make their voice heard. Another thing that's relevant is that police officers are more likely to know people in the community and to see them as friends and neighbors rather than just as members of a subject population that they're coming to be part of an occupying military force against which is unfortunately how a lot of police seem to see the people they're policing. And so a more decentralized, smaller scale form of policing seemed to perform better. And since they were basing this largely on feedback from citizens in the neighborhoods, one response that they got was, oh, well, normal people, what do they know? What if they're just completely wrong? And the Ostrom said, okay, well, let's look into that. And so they started gathering information on how citizens perceived various other aspects of their neighborhoods, things like how rough and poorly maintained the roads were, or things like how bright streetlights were on their streets. And then they would measure how bright the streetlights were with, you know, things that sort of measure the intensity of light. And they would use what they called a roughometer to sort of go over the road and uh, measure the bumps and potholes in it. And they found that, oh, lo and behold, people tend to know things about the community that they live in. They often know things about the conditions they're living under. They have local knowledge. And that local knowledge is relatively reliable. And so what they found in this case is, is that smaller, more decentralized forms of policing tend to work better at satisfying people's needs. Another reason for this, by the way, is because of what's called co-production. The fact that effective creation of public safety can't be done solely by some outside bureaucratic force 
because their ability to actually provide these sort of public safety outcomes is contingent in large part on the ways in which people are acting to secure their own safety, things like locking doors, things like resolving their disputes with one another peaceably, as well as their willingness to cooperate with the police, right? Willingness to call the cops, uh, willingness to talk to them when asked, these sorts of things. Uh, and so in situations where there's more of this sort of community trust, you're going to have something more like functional policing that's serving what people want out of policing. And I think the lessons from this don't just apply to formally organized police forces, but they also apply to whatever sort of government system we're developing to serve whatever functions of policing we see as legitimate. And so this provides good reasons for thinking that a form of self-governance from the bottom up could replace whatever the desirable services people are getting from police departments. Uh, and that's not a conclusion that Eleanor Ostrom would necessarily endorse, despite her work providing very good reasons to think self-governance works quite well and governance from the bottom up works quite well. She was not a full-on anarchist. She was instead sort of a person who was sort of a liberal with a great degree of favorability to individual liberty, self-governance, and local grassroots democratic participation in the construction and reconstruction of institutions. But the lessons from her work can provide very good lessons for how we might build a world in which safety is produced by communities working together rather than by outside forces of violent occupying armies of militarized police. It seems Ostrom's, you sort of hinted at it, but it seems Ostrom's work really lends itself to the idea of polycentrism. What is polycentrism and how might it interact with our hopes for a world beyond the police? Yeah. So polycentrism or polycentricity is an idea that that was originally developed by a social theorist named uh, Michael Polanyi. And he used it to study things like the scientific community, as well as markets, in which you have multiple centers of decision making. And their interactions with one another lead to often beneficial outcomes due to both contracting, cooperation, competition, contestation, and so on. And so in the scientific community, rather than having like one hierarchy of scientists where we're all working in one lab for the head scientist, instead you have a bunch of different people who are trying to submit results to academic journals. Um, and there are multiple journals and there are multiple people who might be your rivals who are going to be acting as peer reviewers to check your research. And once your research is published, they might also have incentives to check your research, to write papers responding to your research and so on. And so that process that emerges from multiple different centers of decision making leads to a process that's more likely to track truth than a process in which there's some expert that's given a monopoly on the attempt to produce research or to find truth. And what Vincent Ostrom, so Eleanor's husband, along with Charles Tibu and a third scholar whose last name was Warren, I always forget his first name. One thing that they found in their work on metropolitan governance was that metropolitan communities often can be to a large extent polycentric, right? So rather than being one city, this is Gotham, right? Rather than being one city, instead, it's a situation where you have multiple water districts, multiple school districts, multiple police precincts, and they don't always neatly map onto one another. It's not like everybody in one water district is also in the same school district and also in the same police precinct. They often overlap and compete. And this, what had been called by critics, a crazy quilt, a sort of chaotic pattern that people might see as totally irrational and unreasonable. They argued it provided some opportunity for competition, which provides a check on power, 
as well as for various forms of local participation and social learning. And studying a wide range of polycentric systems can provide us with good reasons to think that to the extent a system is polycentric, it is more likely to have checks on unaccountable power, it is more likely to encourage entrepreneurship and human creativity, and it is more likely to be a system in which we can govern with one another rather than govern over each other. And so the lessons that this has for a both for our current policing system and for a world without police are manyfold. So one lesson that it has for our current policing system is that moves away from polycentricity have been part of why we've seen police behavior get even worse. So just because we're police abolitionists doesn't mean that we can't say that police are better in some times and places and worse in other times and places. And one way in which policing has gotten worse has been the militarization of policing through the transfer of weaponry from the Department of Defense through the 1033 program. Another way in which policing has gotten worse has been the creation of what's called the equitable sharing program for civil asset forfeiture, which basically means cops can take your stuff on the basis of suspicion that it was involved in a crime or that you obtained it through a crime. They don't need to charge you with a crime for that. Your property is guilty until proven innocent. And so you have court cases with names like United States versus a Hyundai Sonata or something, right? So you have these cases where people are defending their property and police have an incentive to gain revenue by focusing on types of crimes where they can expect to seize a lot of assets that they can then auction off and use for the department budget. And so they can augment and supplement their budget by focusing on things where they can plausibly claim, well, this is a pretty lucrative type of crime. So things like drug dealing. And so their attention has been shifted away from meeting local needs so that they can satisfy local taxpayers and prevent them from voting with their feet towards satisfying these sources of federal funding. And that's federal direct funding. So things like what are called COPS grants, which are ostensibly for community policing, but in fact shift the police department's fiscal attention away from the community and towards federal decision makers, as well as things like the federal government transferring them all this weaponry and hardware. So you know, the L.A. police that work in schools, for instance, they just gave up their grenade launcher. I have no idea why you need a grenade launcher when you're policing schools. But they said, oh, we have an opportunity to obtain that from the federal government. I want it. And so they got it. And so all of this shifts their attention away from local communities and towards these centralized decision makers, contributes to militarization, contributes to the legalized plunder, that is, civil asset forfeiture, and causes them to shift towards more things like counter-narcotics enforcement and potentially away from the things that communities might want. And so this might be one factor contributing to things like rape kit backlogs. And so people will ask, well, how are we going to address these violent crimes without the police? And one thing that we should also ask is, well... Why aren't the police addressing these types of violent crimes and why are they instead, you know, kicking down people's door and throwing flash grenades for a drug raid? And the reason is in large part the incentives they face due to these federal programs that have made policing less polycentric. So that's what polycentricity can add to our analysis of policing as it currently exists. As policing has become less polycentric, it's become less locally accountable and more inclined towards reaping these benefits the federal government can offer, which provides good reasons to be skeptical of Joe Biden's proposal to give, what is it, $300 million of additional federal funding to police in order to help them have resources to reform themselves, that proposal 
is like adding fuel to the fire of their shifted fiscal attention away from local communities and towards federal decision makers. So that's one implication that goes more towards how do we reform police. And then on the question of how we abolish the police, what polycentricity teaches us is that, one, there are no panaceas. So there's not one weird trick that's going to work everywhere. Instead, the institutions that work in solving various local level social dilemmas tend to be tightly fitted to the local context and built by people who have intimate knowledge of the situation. And so we're going to see creative development of different types of solutions in different local contexts, and we don't need everything to look the same. To some degree, it being polycentric means that it's not just a vision of small is beautiful. So not everything is going to be local. Where it's useful to them, various forms of community organizations that are providing governance services are going to network with larger scale organizations that can maybe take advantage of economies of scale or provide them with certain types of services. So for instance, Circle of Six provides you with a way to coordinate with a very small group of people in your local area, but the development of the app and the rollout of the app is done by some organization that is rolling it out worldwide. And so polycentricity doesn't necessarily mean that everything is territorially based at the local level. Instead, it means that we see cooperation across different networks of people at various scales of decision making. And so polycentricity provides a way both to critique how police got this way and to be aware of which types of reforms are likely to make it even worse rather than make it better. And it provides a way to see how we're going to see creativity and dynamism and local self-determination um, and the use of local knowledge as we build up alternatives. All right, let's say someone is convinced of police abolition, but has hesitations or concerns about the potential unintended consequences emerging from immediate abolition. They might think it's necessary to create a greater civic and market culture before completely cutting ties. Is this a reasonable concern? And what are your thoughts on that in general? So I do think it's a reasonable concern. And I think it's part of why prison abolitionists and police abolitionists have for years been focusing on building alternatives to police and prisons. And so a big part of what these various community groups do is build alternatives that try to serve the needs of people who are simultaneously over-policed and underserved by police, right? They're not getting protection from the police, they're getting aggression from the police. And so supporting the construction of these types of community projects is a thing that you can do whether you favor immediate abolition or think that we need much more of this before abolition becomes a feasible goal. And so regardless of whether you see abolition as something to do a long way off once we've built up these forms of uh, social networks and alternative institutions or something that we need to do today, investing in building alternative institutions is a key step in that process. And there's already projects going on to do that. And it's worthwhile to get plugged into those projects and support them. As far as making police abolition come to fruition, it seems riots have worked well in actualizing that goal to some extent. Do you agree? And what else might we do to, to try to dismantle the police? I mean, anecdotally, I'm inclined to agree in the current context simply because, you know, after the precinct burned in Minneapolis, after that police station burned down, we did see massive media coverage. We saw various things like the Minneapolis public schools cutting ties with the police department and so on. 
So it seems distinctly plausible that riots are being effective at raising these concerns, at pushing the Overton window, at getting policymakers to admit, oh, this is really serious, at getting decision makers to realize, oh, people are really mad. To whatever extent we can, we should be cutting ties with the police. But on the other hand, I think it's reasonable to worry about backlash. There is a variety of forms of peer-reviewed academic research that suggests that various forms of violent or perceived to be violent direct action um, lead to things like increasing support for harsher law and order policies or increasing support for conservative candidates or that nonviolent campaigns have been more effective in achieving some of their goals. So, for example, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan have a book called Why Civil Resistance Works that finds that develops a big database of a lot of different protest movements that were advocating for things all the way from regime change to ousting foreign occupying forces to more narrow social goals and tended to find that nonviolent campaigns were more successful because they were able to get more mass participation. But one thing that we're seeing in this case is that we can get mass participation, right? We're getting mass participation in protests with most of that mass participation being peaceful protests and we're getting rioting. And so it's not necessarily an either or choice. And to a large extent, this point about the ability to engage in mass participation might apply less to riots and more to things like, are we engaging in guerrilla warfare or are we engaging in protests? More people can participate in protests than can become part of a guerrilla insurgent group, right? And so that might be a big part of what's driving Chenoweth and Stefan's results. I'm not sure to what where they would classify the current uprisings because there are both nonviolent protest elements and various things like riots, which, to be fair, involve more property destruction than direct physical violence against persons. So I'm hesitant to have a super strong opinion on the effectiveness of riots because I agree. It seems like a lot of the big developments that have happened here happened after high profile forms of uh, rioting and that this has pushed in the story into the news as they receded. We maybe saw less attention. And as these sort of really attention grabbing things get back into the news, we see more attention. So I'm open to the effectiveness. But given the state of the peer reviewed literature from not just Chenoweth and Stefan, but also from sociologists like Fabio Rojas and other political scientists, but there is academic research that people point to. So Omar Wasau of Princeton has a paper in the American Political Science Review called Agenda Seeding, How 1960s Black Protests Moved Elites, Public Opinion, and Voting, that found that some of the more persuasive stuff came from things like influencing public opinion through the valence of media coverage, which involved mostly disruptive tactics like protests and with protest group strategies that appeal to persuadable members of the public, like nonviolent civic disobedience, generating more sympathetic coverage. And on the other hand, things like violence having sort of dual effects on it. So state violence against protesters leads to more effective framing for activists. So the fact that we have cameras on the ground, both from journalists and from activists, that are recording all of the horrible stuff that the cops are doing to protesters and to journalists, that's getting a lot of sympathy. Meanwhile, when there's direct violent resistance, media coverage often tends to focus on dominant group concerns about order and sustaining social order. And that's what media organizations like Fox News have been trying to focus on, right? They're trying to portray the protest movement as a threat. That's why people like Tom Cotton and Donald Trump have been trying to portray protesters as terrorists. And so the degree to which you can get 
support from voters and the elites to make changes in your favor depends in part on how the movement is perceived. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean riots can't ever work. It seems as though they can serve as a galvanizing force, keep these concerns in the media cycle, keep attention on these settings, and then people can then see, oh, wow, the police are really horribly brutalizing people. Here's all this video evidence. I'm hesitant to have a super strong opinion on what's effective, but there's some evidence that being directly targeted by state violence while appearing to be quite peaceful is a key way to achieve change and to be successful. There's some evidence that choosing a nonviolent movement strategy that can bring in more direct participants than a strategy that's built around violent resistance being the core tactic can be successful, but much of that can coexist with rioting. And so I don't want to say that that literature totally disproves the potential for rioting to be effective, in part because I don't have extensive expertise on that literature, and there are also potential concerns about external validity. What's true in one historical context or in a lot of historical contexts doesn't have to be true for the contemporary uprisings. As anarchists, we ultimately want the state abolished entirely. What can anarchists do to help make that happen as well as dismantle the police? Yeah. So part of what we'll need to do in order to make the abolition of the state a viable possibility is get people to agree that a world without the state is desirable. We don't need to get everyone to agree, but the more people are strongly averse to the state's exercise of violence and the more people are optimistic about the possibilities for social cooperation outside the state the more likely we can reach a situation where stateless forms of self-governance are able to operate sustainably without people supporting repression against those uh, stateless forms of social organization, and the more likely we are to be able to get to a world where we abolish the state and people don't just immediately respond by saying, my God, it's anarchy. We got to build a new state, right? So (laughs) shifting the ideology of the public is really important for building towards a sustainable anarchism. Another thing that's really important and that is conducive to building that ideological shift is having forms of social cooperation that we help build that show the viability of doing things without direct state action. And so some of this is building services that substitute for the police, that help people address violence in their lives, that help people access emergency services without getting the cops involved, right? So things like what the Oakland Power Projects are doing to train people on ways to respond to health emergencies without calling the cops. All of that winds up being one really important way to both reduce the role of police in our lives in the here and now, to make people more secure and safe in dangerous situations, and to show a proof of concept of, hey, we can do this without the state. It's possible. It's desirable it's better. So building the better world right now, building the new world in the shell of the old, engaging in projects in your community that demonstrate the viability of grassroots social cooperation and show that it can serve people's needs better than the state, building mutual aid projects, all of this winds up being a crucial way to build anarchism, both in terms of the short-run gains of improving people's lives right now and in terms of the long-run gains of shifting people's ideology so that they don't immediately assume that order and service provision depends crucially on the state. Instead, they can think, oh, here's how we build things that we want without the state, perhaps even in spite of the state. 
here's how we can build a society that is free, flourishing, productive, humane, caring, compassionate without the state. This is how we get people to realize that liberty truly is the mother, not the daughter of order. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, Nathan. So towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I list a series of people or ideas and give my guests uh, one minute or less to respond to each item. Are you down? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Lysander Spooner. A brilliant abolitionist, hero of the 19th century, did great work to displace the state and show that it's unnecessary by doing things like building an alternative postal service that routed around the postal monopoly advocated direct action to support slave revolts, and wrote extensively on individualist anarchism. He was wrong on intellectual property, but he was right about so much else. Absolute hero. Okay. Queer liberation. So queer liberation is vitally important, and it's crucially tied to anarchism. The modern queer liberation movement started with the Stonewall riots, started with people fighting back against police, and queer liberation movements are still a vital site of anarchist resistance, whether that's Black and Pink's prisoner support work, or the Audre Lorde Project Safe Outside the System Collective, or numerous other projects built by queer people, trans people, and especially people of color in those communities. Hayek. Friedrich Hayek was a brilliant social scientist who helped us understand social cooperation from the bottom up, and social learning, the role of knowledge in decision-making and how a central planner can't use all the knowledge that other people have. In his most recent book on Friedrich Hayek, Peter Betke refers to Hayek's research program as a sort of epistemic institutionalism, so studying how institutions or rules influence how we can use knowledge. And while Hayek wasn't an anarchist, I think anarchists have a lot to learn from him, and he's crucial to a successful anarchist project. Revolution. Um, So revolution involves massive collective action problems. People can overcome those collective action problems. Whether revolution is the best way to displace and replace the state depends on what we mean. I'm wary of revolution to some extent due to just the dangers of widespread warfare. And so I'm more favorable towards building the new world in the shell of the old. But it also shows the capacity of people to cooperate without a state coordinating them, and in fact against a state that is trying to suppress their ability to coordinate. Peace economics. A lot of my work is in defense and peace economics, so studying how people can achieve and sustain peace and resist violence in their lives. And so some of this means studying how the state's militaries work and how those state's militaries brutalize people. And some of this involves studying how conditions of peace can be sustained and how they can lead to a greater degree of cooperation and flourishing for all people. All right. Thanks for that, Nathan. Um, I'm going to read some listener questions and then we can move to the end of the interview. Okay. Sounds great. The first listener question is, what are your thoughts on the current autonomous zone in Seattle? So the autonomous zone in Seattle is really exciting. It's difficult to know exactly what to think simply because people are often putting out inaccurate information about it, right? So uh, I remember there was that tweet that everyone was passing around about them running out of food that appeared to be a totally false tweet and uh, appeared to be also designed in a way that people who know leftists and know anarchists would 
read it and see, oh, this is just written to appeal to stereotypes about leftists, right? So it mentions, oh, please bring vegan meat substitutes and soy products, right? That's appealing to the right sort of stereotypes about what people who are vegan eat, right? We'd probably be asking more for staple foods of various sorts. For the most part, direct vegan meat substitutes aren't a staple in most vegan diets. There's a lot of misinformation, but I'm really excited always to see people experimenting with different types of voluntary social cooperation and social cooperation from the bottom up. Their list of demands has a lot of things I agree with, a lot of really radical pushes against the criminal justice system, has some things I disagree with, like uh, the use of rent control. But it's really cool to see people trying out this type of protest tactic, to see people building various forms of bottom-up social organization. And I think that people should be following this closely, trying to parse through the available information, correcting your friends who spread, whether wittingly or not, misinformation about what's going on there, and trying to make sure we follow this so we understand what works and what doesn't in these types of experiments in bottom-up social cooperation and protest. Another listener asks... How does the militarization of the police affect co-production of law? Oh, excellent question. So the militarization of the police tends to fuel a relationship of distrust between police and those who they are policing. And it also tends to harden um, what police are doing towards doing those sorts of things that they can use their militarized tools for. So we might imagine a world in which people within communities are direct inputs into the policing process. They're directly um, helping the police figure out what the priorities are going to be. They're working with the police both to hold them accountable and to tell them about what the types of social problems are in their community that they want addressed. Militarization of the police puts a wedge in that process where rather than answering to the community, police instead have this big source of available tools and capital that comes in the form of the Department of Defense transferring them large amounts of military hardware. It also puts a wedge in that process because it trains police to see ordinary people as their enemies, right? So it helps build up a culture where when there are protesters in a city, police will wear t-shirts that say, we get up early to beat the crowds. And that was an actual t-shirt that a bunch of cops war when they were policing some of the protests of, I forget whether it was the Democratic or Republican National Convention one year. And so militarization both alters the incentives police face by giving them tools that in order to keep and to get more of, they need to use. So they need to engage in a lot more SWAT style raids and shifting them away from answering to the local community and shifting the culture in police forces to see people more as enemies to be destroyed than as human beings that you want to work with and cooperate with to build a safer community. All right, two more listener questions. You've studied customary law in Anglo-Saxon society. In what ways is this relevant to policing today or to a society without police? So customary law within Anglo-Saxon society, most of my work on this builds on the work of an economist named Bruce Benson and his book, The Enterprise of Law. And among the Anglo-Saxons, he's argued that there's a there was a system of decentralized law in which rather than employing prosecutors to charge offenders with crimes against the state, you had a system of law based upon torts and based upon reciprocity. So rather than people being charged with, with violating state edicts, people would bring sort of claims related to a dispute against someone and say, hey, that guy stole my stuff or that guy hurt me or hurt a member of my family. And the particular enforcement mechanism used was something 
called the hundred. And the hundred was divided into smaller groups of neighbors known as tithings. Individuals would inform the leader of the hundred, who was called the hundredsman, of thefts. The hundredsman spread this information to the tithings, who then pursued the offender. And participating in the tithing provided important benefits, and those outside of tithings were effectively ostracized. And so this created incentives to participate in co-production and a system of community accountability. But this system was eroded um, after the Norman conquest, which led to the rise of a powerful monarchy in England. And so monarchists replaced what was previously a restitution-based system in which your accountability would take the form of paying back the person you had victimized towards a system of fines and capital punishment. So rather than monetary payments from offenders going to their victims, now monetary payments from offenders would go towards the crown. And so the top-down administration of justice reduced the rewards to victims of working with the justice system to address wrongs done to them and created an incentive for those within the royal hierarchy to establish new crimes, new offenses, in order to extract more resources from the subject population. As the tithings eroded, the Normans created an institution called the Frank Pledge, which replaced this system to some extent, and Frank Pledge members were expected to pursue and capture thieves and perform court duties. If they didn't act along these duties, the entire Frank Pledge could be fined. So again, fines and fees and coercion from the top down was how they induced participation rather than sort of a system of community responsibility where you reciprocally participate in order to secure expectations that others will help you in the future. A system of sort of bottom-up mutual aid is replaced with a system of hierarchy. And this new system started to replace restitution with punishment. So rather than people paying back, as I said, their victims, they would pay fees to the crown. Prisons were later created by the English government. And when prisons were created, these houses of correction were largely used to discipline the poor and to impose work discipline. So this was effectively a transfer from the sort of emerging working class towards landowners and owners of various businesses that would hire workers. And so a system that had existed to promote cooperation and the resolution of disputes was replaced as a result of this conquest with a hierarchical system that existed to redistribute wealth and power away from ordinary people and towards a ruling political class. So, yeah, that has clear implications for our current policing system because our current policing system is a similar hierarchical system of rule that redistributes resources towards the police. What organizations related to the protests should folks support or donate to? So a big thing is supporting bail funds. And so the Community Justice Exchange runs a website called the National Bail Fund Network, which is a directory of community bail funds. And so these basically gather up funds that then are used to pay bail for various people who have been booked into local jails. They also have a list of bail funds that provide bail to immigrant detainees. And so what this does is this allows you to help out the protesters on the ground as well as other people who have been brought into the criminal justice system and who absent their bail being paid might be held in jail indefinitely until their trial. And so you can get them out of pretrial detention so that they can live freely or relatively freely rather than living in jail until they're brought to trial. So that's a crucial thing to directly support the protesters. To support broader prison abolitionist work, one organization that you can support is Critical Resistance. And I think I briefly mentioned 
one of their offshoots, the Oakland Power Projects, which builds various forms of training to teach people how to deal with health emergencies without calling the cops. Because when you call 911 for a health emergency, in many jurisdictions, the cops come too. And so that's one organization that has been working for years to abolish the prison industrial complex and to build alternatives to it. Another organization that does a lot of great work is the Audre Lorde Project, and they're based in New York City, and I think I briefly mentioned their Safe Outside the System Collective. So they are an organization led largely by lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, transgender, and gender nonconforming people of color. They provide a community center and a community organizing center and essentially serve various community needs, including training to help defuse violent situations without calling the cops. So these are just a few of the relevant projects. I think there's also a group called the Bail Project that does some work to bail people out of jail. But these are just a few things that you can donate to to support either the protests or the broader prison abolitionist and police abolitionist project. All right, great. Where should folks go to consume all of the material you've written? So there are a range of places to go. One is the website of the Center for a Stateless Society, c4ss.org. There you can find a lot of my articles, mostly from before I started graduate school. So you can find a lot of my work on prison abolition there, a lot of anarchist op-eds in which I talk about various things that are wrong with the state. To find more of my academic work, you can go to my Google Scholar profile, which lists many of my academic papers and book chapters, as well as the number of citations they have so far and provides links to my co-authors. You can also find my profile on the Social Science Research Network, where I have PDFs available of academic papers that I've written. And that doesn't have all of my papers, but it's a good place to find much of what I've written without having to go through a paywall, which unfortunately a lot of academic publications have unless you upload them to sites like the Social Science Research Network. Where should folks go to learn more about uh, police abolition or more broadly, just the politics that you're interested in general? Center for a Stateless Society, as I mentioned, has a lot of work on these sorts of things. Critical Resistance has a lot of information on these sorts of issues. Big Door Brigade, which is um, a website that's run by Dean Spade, who's a prison abolitionist legal scholar and a trans liberation activist. That's his website that deals with a lot of resources on mutual aid, and much of those mutual aid projects are related to providing alternatives to prison and supporting people who have been put into or brutalized by the prison industrial complex and by the police system. So those are a few places where you can find resources and perspectives on prison abolition, police abolition, and alternatives to the police. All right, last question. How can folks participate in helping to bring about a more anarchist world? Oh yeah, so there are a lot of good ways to directly support the struggle to abolish the state, to abolish prisons, to abolish policing. And so some of that is directly plugging into community projects that are working to provide alternatives. So getting involved in local organizations that are doing work around domestic violence or sexual violence and helping them with projects that are offering survivors or people who are at risk of this violence support. Uh, One way to get involved in various types of projects is directly writing to and supporting people who are in prisons. And so there are some groups that organize prisoner letter writing campaigns. So the Anarchist Black Cross has various chapters around the country and around the world that coordinate prisoner letter writing efforts. And they have lists of political prisoners 
and you can write to them. And so even if there's not a anarchist black cross group in your area, it's fairly easy to get their list of political prisoners and start writing letters to these political prisoners. Similarly, Black and Pink is an organization that does similar sorts of prison letter writing and prisoner support work, specifically focusing on LGBTQ prisoners. So those are a few ways that you can directly get involved in supporting people who are imprisoned. And one way that you can directly get involved in working towards a more anarchist society, in addition to these sorts of direct involvement in mutual aid projects, which you can find more about mutual aid tactics at the website Big Door Brigade, or these prison abolitionist projects, is to learn as much as you can about anarchist ideas, both the arguments for them and the arguments against them, and in whichever space that you have a voice, advocate for these ideas and listen to people's concerns and meet them where they are. Because people have a lot of really understandable and reasonable concerns about whether a stateless society would be better for them. And in order for us to move towards a stateless society, we need to learn about those people's concerns and develop thoughtful responses and empathetic responses that address them. So that's a lot of potential work, both for us in our interpersonal relationships and potentially for writers and scholars and speakers and essayists in terms of research programs and persuasion type essays. So, yeah. All right. Well, Nathan Goodman, I can't thank you enough for joining me. It's been an honor for the second time to have you on. And um, yeah, I mean, hopefully in the future, we'll have you on again at some point. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you about these ideas. And it was a pleasure the first time. And I love the work that you're all doing at Non-Servian Media. So keep it up. Thanks, Nathan. We'll do. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed my interview with Nathan Goodman. As Nathan mentioned, there are some wonderful organizations everyone should consider donating to, supporting, or getting involved with if you can. Just to recap, a couple of those were National Bail Fund Network. You can find them at www.communityjusticeexchange.org. And Critical Resistance. You can find them at criticalresistance.org. If you like the work Nathan does or enjoyed this interview, be sure to follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Nathan P. Goodman. And of course, if you like the work Non-Servian Media does, please consider becoming a patron, or you can help us out simply by liking and sharing this episode. I should also remind everyone that we now have an active Twitter account, so be sure to follow all we do there. Our handle is at Non-Servian Media. Once again, big shout out to our patrons for making this show happen. And a personal big shout out to Clay Zobelak for helping me to co-produce this episode. Y'all are awesome. Rest in peace, George Floyd, and solidarity with all other victims of the racist police state. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.